ago last week, we began a brand new series called Generation Two. And the idea is all about how that God works through generations. If one generation communicates its values to the next generation and they pick up on it and they get it in their heart and spirit, the effect of those two generations collaborating together is not an addition effect, it's an exponential effect. Some of you here today, you're, you're fairly young and you have parents who were Christians and they may not be perfect. We talked about that last week. In our story of Elisha and Elijah, we said that Elijah, who was generation one, he was the pioneer generation, Elijah had rough edges and he had some issues in his life. But Elisha came along and got all the strength in generation two and none of the baggage that Elijah had. And because of that, Elisha, although he might not be as famous as Elijah, actually accomplished twice as much. Wouldn't you like in your generation to take all the strengths of the previous generation, leverage them for the kingdom of God, and then take them to the next level and not have the baggage, not have the issues or the struggles? That's what we talked about last week. We talked about the, the pioneer generation and the builder generation. And one thing that we learned is everybody here is really in both generations. You're a pioneer to those who will come after you. You are a builder for those who came before you. So the key is to leverage the strengths of the previous generation and then take them to the next level. Got to clear up one thing though. I talked about my grandmother last week and several people asked if that was me and my grandmother. Um, you might want to take a look at the age of that picture and just sort of figure on that. I have a hunch that was taken about 1930. My grandmother would have been about 20. She would have looked more like that than that. So that's not me and my grandmother. And I, I don't know what I would have looked like in 1930. I think I would have just been in the mind of God. But this is, that's what this is all about. It's generational, taking our faith to the next level. Now, we're talking about Elisha. And I know that for a lot of you, Elisha is not a character in the Bible that you know a whole lot about. You may not have studied him very much. That's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to be walking through his life to learn what it was that allowed him to take the faith that God had invested in him through his mentor, Elijah, to take that faith to the next level. So now, here's the first thing. If you want to understand Elisha, you got to start with this. God chose Elisha. God chose Elisha. So take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and look in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. Most of the story of Elisha is in 2 Kings, but the calling of Elisha is in the book of 1 Kings. Now, let me just walk you through this. And some of you, you may not be real strong Bible students and you might not have a background on this. Just in case, I'm going to try to give you as much as I can. I've been talking about Elijah. Elijah was God's prophet. He was God's representative for that generation. Israel at that time was in all kinds of sin, idolatry, and they were headed on their way to judgment. The king was not a godly man. God wanted somebody in that nation to be a spokesman for him. God wanted somebody to be a spiritual leader for Israel. So you have to understand, Elijah was more than just a preacher. He was more than just a prophet. He was God's man in that environment to represent God. And in effect, and if you study these, these scriptures, you'll discover that really, basically, Elijah, through the work and the power of God, was really running the country. And then God wanted a successor, and that's when Elisha comes about. We're going to read about that here in, in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 19. You remember last week when I told you that Elisha had all the strengths and none of the baggage? In chapter 19, Elijah, his predecessor, is going through some of his baggage. Just to give you a little background, Elijah the prophet 
had challenged Israel to decide whether they were going to worship Jehovah God or worship idols. So he went up on top of this mountain named Carmel, and they, they had this test that they were going to do. They put a sacrifice on the altar, and Elijah said, look, if, if Baal is God, you pray, you ask him to drop fire down here and incinerate this sacrifice, and if that happens, we'll know that Baal is God. He said, I'll put my offering up here. I'll ask Jehovah God to bring fire down and, and burn up the sacrifice. If Jehovah God does that, we'll know that Jehovah's God. Great thing. It must have been great theater too. But anyway, you know how it was. The prophets of Baal, they put their sacrifice out there on the altar and they started praying. They prayed from six o'clock in the morning until the afternoon. Nothing happens. You know, if you don't have anybody on the other end of the line, you can talk all day on the phone. Nothing's going to happen, you know. And they didn't have anybody other than the line. Elijah got up and prayed, and in English, it's about 59 words. I don't know how long it was in Hebrew, but he prayed just this real short prayer. I mean, Elijah, Elijah prayed a prayer the length of which you hope that somebody prays when they're asking the blessing on a meal when you're hungry. And, and he prayed, and boom, there came the fire from heaven, licked up the sacrifice, burned it all, incinerated all, and the people said, God is God, we're going to worship God. And Elijah said, well, you know what? We need to do something about all these false prophets. And that day... 850 of them were slaughtered. And you say, well, I don't like that. That's what happened. That was God's plan. God wanted Israel rid of that. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Listen to me. Those 850 prophets were accountable for sending a lot of people to hell. And so God wanted them dealt with. That's Old Testament. And, and if you come up here after the service and ask me to explain it, I can't. I just know that's what happened. Now, you would have thought that Elijah was on a high because he'd had this great experience. But remember, I told you Elijah had baggage. He was a powerful man. <clears throat> But he was prone to anger, anger, and depression. And so the queen was a very wicked woman, and she said to Elijah, you know what, what you did to my prophets? I'm going to do that to you by this time tomorrow. And Elijah began to run for his life. Think about this. Here was this guy who just saw this great miracle. Now he's running for his life, scared and, and, and almost cowardly. And he's asking God to let him die. He said, God, I'm not any good. And he's even blaming God for God not protecting him. So it's in that context that we hear about Elisha for the first time. Isn't that interesting? It's when Elijah is hiding out in a cave, asking God to let him die, that we first hear about Elisha. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15, and God is talking to Elijah. Elijah is the pioneer. Then the Lord told him, go back the way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshah, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to replace you as my prophet. Now, for those of you who like to study the Bible and you get into some of the more intricate stuff, let me throw you one to think about for a moment. Usually in the Bible, when someone is anointed, we're talking about a king or a priest, Elisha is the only prophet in the Bible that we read of as being anointed. Anointing was the placing of oil on someone's head, signifying that God had chosen that person for a specific task or a specific purpose. Now, here's where it gets down to you and me this morning. This is the first point that's in your notes, and I want you to really think about this and pay attention. And all of you, especially who, who have all your life ahead of you, I, ca I cannot imagine how important I can't tell you how important this next point is for all of us. God is looking for somebody he can invest his power in, demonstrate his favor on, 
and share his purpose with. Now, I know that's not grammatically right. You're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition, but I just wanted to say it as fast as I can. God is looking for somebody he can invest his power in, demonstrate his favor on, and share his purpose with. God is in heaven, but his eyes, the old King James said his eyes in this text are running to and fro. Let me give you 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and, and verse 9. The Bible said the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. How many of you could stand some strong support from God? Amen. I mean, can you believe that verse? Isn't that incredible? The Bible said God, is, his eyes are going back and forth throughout the earth looking for somebody that he can strongly support. Our translation said the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So that's what I want you to understand, that God is searching for people that he can invest his power in, demonstrate his favor on, and share his purpose with. Let's just break that apart for a moment, and let's talk about invested power. God is looking for somebody he can invest his power in. Listen to me. When God invests his power in you, what happens is, at that moment, you begin to live with possibilities that are bigger than you are. All of us know what it's like to assess our own strength and figure how far our strength can take us. But when you begin to have God's power in your life, suddenly there are possibilities that you never dreamed of. Listen, one thing I do as pastor of a church is I examine a lot of relationships because people come to me and they bring me their relationship problems. Do you know what most people struggle with in relationship problems? Who's going to have control? You show me any problem in any relationship, and I bet you nine times out of ten, I can pare it down to somebody wants control in that situation. Why do we want control? Do we want control because we think we're strong? No. Strong people are not looking for control. They have a sense that they have the strength already to do what needs to be done. Weak people look for control. See, that's what messes up so many marriages. That's what blows so many relationships between parents and children, sometimes parents and grown children. That's what destroys relationships in the workplace. Somebody's looking for that edge. Somebody's looking for control. And you know what? If you've got to be in control of situations in your own strength, it will just eat you up. Now listen, I want you to consider for a moment what God is saying here. God's looking for people he can invest his power in. Not that you can dominate the environment. Not so that you can control a relationship with your husband and wife. You know, somebody says, wow, that sounds great, Pastor. I have a terrible relationship with my husband, and he just, you know, he just, I need power so that I can get even with him. No, that's not what we're talking about. God wants to give you power to make possibilities true in your life, which are bigger than you are. I was, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we all watched the, um, the drama unfold in Atlanta. Uh, the man who uh, killed the judge and the court reporter and the, the deputy and then shot the, um, the, uh, foreign, the uh, federal officer. And then of all places to wind up in the, in the apartment of a 26-year-old woman. Can you imagine the danger that she was in? I mean, if you, if you think about the four people that that man killed all of them were in a stronger situation 
than that lady whose apartment he broke in, right? I mean, if you think about that, she was in the most vulnerable of all positions. The only thing was, Ashley Smith was a born-again Christian. Not a perfect woman, not a woman who had everything together, perhaps, but she was a born-again Christian. She was reading her Bible. She had, of course, Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you there are not too many situations where a man that evil breaks into the apartment of a woman that vulnerable and nothing bad happens. Why did Ashley Smith come out okay? You say, well, she just happened to have Rick Warren's book there or she just happened to do some sort of psychological trick. No, she had the power of God resting on her. I really believe that too many times we Christians underestimate the importance of having the power of God. So remember this, when God chose Elisha, he was looking for somebody to invest his power in. Then let's think about the second one. The second one is demonstrated favor. Demonstrated favor. God is looking for people that he can show his favor to. Now somebody will say, well, Mark, I don't think that God plays favorites. The Bible says that God is no respecter of person. What that verse means, listen, what that verse means is God is not impressed with the stuff that people are, are impressed with. For instance, you know, if somebody is president of a company and a multimillionaire, that person gets a lot of, a lot of attention in life. If somebody's a street person, they don't get much attention in life. When the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, what the Bible is saying is that God is not at all impressed that this guy's president of a company and this person's a street person. In that regard, God is no respecter of persons. But never get the idea that God treats everybody the same because that's not the case. God is looking for people that he can demonstrate his grace and his favor on. You know, we have, uh, riding around on 21st Street, it's impossible to miss all the spring parade of homes. Right down the street from us, there's a successful builder in Wichita that has a whole string of models. Do you ever go through model homes this time of year? It's, what's interesting about that is if you get one of the price sheets for one of those houses, there will be a base price. Well, let's say it's $175,000. And you say to yourself, well, you know, I think I could afford that. Maybe, maybe $175,000, maybe I can stretch and afford that. And you walk through the house, and it's just beautiful, and you say, wow, so this is so much house for $175,000. But then you get home, and you begin to read through that, and you'll discover that that base price is not the price of the house that model house that you just walked through. It's $275,000. Because see, that builder has added a lot of optional stuff. And by the time you get through paying for that optional stuff, that house is costing about twice as much as you thought it was going to cost when you walked in. Why do builders do that? Builders put in all that optional stuff because they want to show you what they could do with that base house. I honestly believe that God is looking for people that he can demonstrate what he can do in their lives. God wants to put some optional equipment in you. God wants to demonstrate and show what he can do in your life. And listen, you say, well, well, Mark, I don't know about that. Then read the Bible. Because all throughout the scripture, you'll discover that God shows his favor on certain people. God is looking for people he can demonstrate his favor on. Then... Third thing, God is looking for people to share his purpose with. I'm getting to the age now, I'll be 50 in a year and a half, that's hard to believe. 
I'm getting to the age now where I'm asking myself about everything that I do. Is there purpose to it? You know, there are so many people in the world today who are getting money and they're getting, you know, they have, they have stuff. But is there any purpose to, the, to their lives? I just said to you, God wants to invest power in people. He wants to demonstrate favor uh, on people. And those two things may sound very good, but friend, listen to me. Nothing is so awesome as when God shares his purpose with you. When what God is about becomes what you're about. That's great. Listen to me. When, when what God is about becomes what you're about, from that moment on, you have a totally meaningful existence. And whenever the time comes for you to die or go to heaven, you might not be rich, you might not be famous, but you can look back on your life and you can say, you know what, my life was absolutely worth living. So think about that for a moment. God is looking for people he can invest power in, demonstrate his favor on, and then to share his purpose with. You know, I, I wonder how many of us have asked God to share his purpose with us in our lives. I remember when I was a kid, I used to love to read biographies. And I remember I picked up, when I was in elementary school, I picked up a biography of a man that I, is one of my heroes. I didn't know it at the time, not until I read his story, but if I had to give you a short list of my heroes, this guy would be on the list. His name is George Washington Carver. Anybody ever hear of George Washington Carver? Great black scientist. George Washington Carver was not only a great uh, great scientist. He was a devoted follower of God, Jesus Christ. And according to, to Carver's own story, he was praying one day. And he said, God, would you explain the universe to me? And God said, that's too big for you. Ask for something smaller. And Carver said, all right. Would you explain man to me? And God said, that's too big for you. Ask for something smaller. He said, God, would you, would you explain the peanut to me? And he said, God said, that's just about your size. And for those of you who know the story, George Washington Carver found over 300 uses for the peanut and saved the South during a, during a plague. So that's what God wants to do. He wants to share his purpose with you. Maybe it's about something as small as the peanut, but just ask him, have you ever gone to God and said, God, would you share your purpose with me? I, I don't know what I'm getting out of life. Well, I've got to hurry. Let's, let's, uh, let's point this out. <clears throat> when God went looking, when God went looking for somebody, think about this. God doesn't just roll the dice and see who comes up. God doesn't spin the wheel. God always has a reason. When he's looking for somebody to invest his power in, to, to demonstrate his favor on and to share his purpose with, there's always a reason. God, God has, there's something in that person that God sees. What was it in Elisha that God could see? And this is interesting, others obviously couldn't see it. Now take your Bibles this time and look at the same chapter. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19. The Bible says, so Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing in a field with a team of oxen. There were 11 teams of oxen ahead of him and he was plowing with the 12th team. So you're going out looking for somebody, right? You want to find a great man. Where do you go? You go out to the fields where guys are plowing. Twelve plows in a row. If I go out looking for somebody, I take the guy with the first plow, right? I mean, first of all, you know you're not getting sharpest knives in the drawer when you get guys who are plowing in the field. I mean, these are not CEOs. These are not geniuses. 
But think about this. Elisha was the last guy. Out of 12 guys, he was the last guy that you would think that anybody would pick. Some of you are that way today. You don't, you're not all district. You don't win the beauty contests. You're not part of, you're not part of any you know, intellectual organization. You don't have a lot of money. You don't drive a brand new car. You don't live in an expensive house. You might be the last person this world would look at as important. But remember this, God has a way of picking the last person you would think. Now, I'm going to just show you this in the Bible, just so you'll know this isn't me. If you keep your marker here in 1 Kings 19 and look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important so that no one could ever boast in the presence of God. You see that? God has a way of picking the last person that you would think. But you know what? Oftentimes, the world values what's not so important and undervalues what is important. Let me give you an example of that. There's a, there's a quantum difference between intelligence and wisdom. Many people have intelligence who are not wise. You, you ever know somebody that's really smart, has a lot of college degrees, and they're just life stupid? You know of anybody like that? You work with anybody like that? I was reading about this the other day. Mensa is an organization of certified geniuses. To belong to Mensa, you have to have an IQ of 140 or higher. And they just love to get together and share their intelligence with each other. Out in San Francisco, there was a Mensa conference several years ago. And when they, there was a group of these Mensa people that were eating at a little cafe, and they noticed that on all the tables, there was salt in the pepper shakers and pepper in the salt shakers. A real problem and a job for Mensa. And so they began to think about what could be done. They debated, they came up with, with different options, and finally they hit on a solution that involved swapping the pepper and the salt, and they, it involved a straw and a napkin and an empty saucer. And they called the server over to show how smart they were. And they said to her, we noticed that all the pepper shakers have salt and all the salt shakers have pepper. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. She unscrewed the lid, switched them, and that was that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a great deal of difference between being smart and being wise. And we're just watching that, you know, with this drama that played out with this tragic young woman who, who was on life support. I mean, here we've got all the intelligence to come up with these devices that prolong life, but we don't have the judgment or the wisdom to use them. See, when God goes looking for somebody, he may pick the last person that the world sees. It's not that God is out to get losers. It's just that there's something in those people that the world may not value. So what was it that Elisha had that God was looking for? Let's, let's, let's notice several of these things that you see here. Um, look, at, uh, look at 1 Kings 19, verse 19 again. 
So Elijah went out and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing in a field with a team of oxen. There were 11 teams of oxen ahead of him. He was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak around his shoulders and walked away again. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but consider what I have done to you. Elisha then returned to his oxen, killed them, and used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the other plowmen, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. So what did Elisha have? Let me show you several things, and these are important. Because if you want to be that person that God taps on the shoulder to demonstrate his favor on, to invest his power in, and to share his purpose with, you're going to need these things. Number one, he was already busy when God called him. He was already busy, okay? Maybe it wasn't the biggest job in the world, but he was busy. Listen, God does not call out lazy people. If you're a lazy person, it doesn't matter how much you know, how sharp you are, what you, what you have going for you, how attractive you are, God does not use lazy people. It wasn't the biggest job in the world, but he was busy. God is looking for busy people. And could I just say that to all of you today? Whenever you need anybody for anything, don't get a lazy person. Doesn't matter how many degrees that person has. Doesn't matter how sharp that person is. Don't get a lazy person. Find somebody who is busy and passionate about what they're doing. I, I want to just make a comment, especially to all of our young ladies here today who are looking for a husband. You know, there's one thing you should always watch for. When you're looking for a husband, listen for that guy who says, oh, I need a job where I'm making $50,000 a year. Ever anybody talk like that? I need a job where I'm making $100,000 a year. Listen, always find that person who knows what he wants to do. Find that person who knows what she wants to do. Maybe they're in a job that's not going to be their ultimate destiny, but they should be bringing their A-plus game to any job. Find that person who is busy, and that's what God did. Some, I, I know people, you know, who say, well, you know, I would really do something great if I had the opportunity. Do something great with the opportunity that you have. That's what Elisha was doing. Number two, look at this. He was ready to trade a life of predictable normalcy for a life filled with the challenge of the unknown. Now, think about this for a moment. If you're the 12th guy plowing with, you know, with your oxen, that's, pretty, that's a pretty predictable life, isn't it? All you have to do is follow the guy in front of you. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do anything genius. You just, you know, you just plow, you collect your paycheck, you come back the next week, and all you got to do is follow the guy in front of you. Elijah was coming by asking him to take the responsibility of speaking for God for a whole country, and that would involve all kinds of challenges. I love Elisha because he is ready to trade the predictable for the life of excitement following God. You know what the average American Christian is doing? Just following God with the plow in front. If people are buying this, you're buying this. If people are, you know, if people are valuing this, you value this. You just follow the guy in front of you. You know, God wants to take your life and use you in an excitable way. So that's the second thing that I noticed. Then the third thing, and this is close, he was willing to take risks. He was willing to take risks. Some people never take risks. They just play it safe. Some people take risks, but they do stupid things. I love that commercial. You've seen the commercial, some people do stupid things. 
But what God wants is he wants people who will take risks following him. Before I, I want to give you one more thing, and, and I'll be through this morning. But I want to show you the most important thing that Elisha had that caused God to choose him. But before I show it to you, I want you to remember the verse that I started with. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those, look at this last line, whose hearts are fully committed to him. Most powerful thing you can see about Elisha here was he eliminated the possibility of turning back. When God came to him through Elijah with a call to do the unpredictable, notice what Elisha did. The Bible says he slaughtered the oxen and he used the implements of plowing as wood to burn the food. He threw a barbecue in effect for the other plowers. What he was saying when he did that was, I am taking this responsibility that God has given me and I am eliminating any chance of going back. The story is told of Julius Caesar that when his troops invaded Britain, that after they had landed, he called all of his soldiers to the cliffs of Dover to look at something. And when the soldiers got to the edge of the cliff, they looked down into the, into the water and they could see the ships that they had used to cross the channel with burning aflame. What they understood at that point was what got them here would not be able to take them away. They were either there to conquer or to be conquered. There was no reverse gear in their strategy. That's what Elisha said. Elisha said, you know what? I'm not going to leave my plow and my oxen standing here in case this doesn't work out. He said, I am following God and I'm not turning back no matter what the cost. Could I close this sermon today by saying to you that there are some pursuits in life that deserve our commitment without any contingency. There are people today who say, well, I, will, I want to follow God or I want to do this, but then if it doesn't work out, boy, that's a big thing today. If it doesn't work out, listen to me. There are some pursuits in your life that are worth staying with it without contingency. One is today, and I've got to talk about this, is marriage. Marriage. There are people today who get married, and they get married with the idea if it doesn't work out, we'll do something else. Now, I know as I say that, there are many of you today who've gone through a divorce and it wasn't your fault, you didn't want it. Man, please know I'm not trying to hurt you at all. I'm just saying this, I, and you, you would know what I'm saying better than anybody else here. Whenever you sign up for marriage, it needs to be a, a pursuit without any contingency. I want, this is something that I really feel like I need to talk about, especially in this service with so many of you who are young singles. We have a cultural thing today where people live together to see if it works, and then they have these huge weddings. Am I the only one to say that doesn't pass the smell test? You know? I mean, isn't that outrageous? I mean, you see these Hollywood types. They have two or three children, and they want to have a big wedding. I mean, doesn't that set off all the, all the idiot alerts? That's not what marriage is. See, marriage is a, is, is a commitment between a man and a woman where they say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to commit to each other. It's not we're going to try this for a while and see if it doesn't work and then do something else. It's a commitment that you make for life. I was reading this week in the National Marriage Pro Project out of Rutgers, the top 10 reasons why men are reluctant to commit to marriage. Now, isn't this interesting? I'm sure that they had to have some kind of grant to fund this study. 
I think I could have jotted these down. The top 10 reasons why men are reluctant to commit to marriage are, number one, they can get sex without marriage more easily than in times past. Number two, they can enjoy the benefits of having a wife by cohabiting rather than marrying. Number three, they want to avoid divorce and financial risks. Number four, they want to wait till they're older to have children. Number five, they fear that marriage will require too many changes and compromises. Number six, they're waiting for the perfect soulmate and she hasn't shown up yet. Number seven, they face few social pressures to marry. Number eight, they're reluctant to marry a woman who already, who already has children. Number nine, they want to own a house before they can find a wife. Number 10, they want to enjoy a single life as long as they can. How far away is that from God's concept of marriage? Where an imperfect man and an imperfect woman unite their lives together and say, you know what, we are committing to each other. There's no contingency here. I mean, we're, we're, we're burning the oxen and we're using the plow as wood for the, for the sacrifice. It's like the unity candle. You, know, you, you ever watch the unity candle when people get married and, you know, they take their own candles and they light the single candle and extinguish their own candle. And there were a couple of college boys who were watching this in a wedding and one said to the other, he didn't know what that meant. He said, what does that mean? He said, it means no more old flames. And that's what it means. That's what it means. Listen, there's a book today. This is the truth. I'm not lying. There's a book today called The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony. The Starter Marriage. Man, you buy starter homes, not starter marriages. I'm just telling you that marriage is just one of those things in life that deserves you pursuing it without a contingency plan. It's not if it doesn't work out. It's I'm committed. I'm committed. Okay. Number two, you knew I was going to say this, God's plan for your life. I pray that every one of you who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior has signed on for God's plan for your life. There is a world of difference between being saved and being a disciple. A disciple is one who follows on a daily basis God's plan for your life. How many of you today have said, I will obey God's plan for my life without any contingency, whatever God asks. I, I know I'm reading, I'm going to read to you briefly from the book of James, and I know that this has to do with prayer, but I just want you to see the language here in James chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible talks about prayer here. When you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to answer, for a doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. People like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They can't make up their minds. They waver back and forth in everything that they do. Man, that just describes so many Christians. Saved, but serving God for a while, but then not serving God for a while. In church for a while, but then out of church for a while. Coming to church maybe once a month, and then the rest of the three weeks finding something to do that you want to do. I wonder today, have you ever determined, was there ever a place in your life, was there ever a spiritual altar? I don't mean a, a physical altar, but I mean, have you ever come to a place spiritually where you say, I am following God's plan for my life. Whatever God wants, he's got. And I'm burning the oxen, I'm burning the implements of plowing. There's no contingency here. I'm going to follow God no matter what he wants. You know what? That's the kind of person God's looking for. That's the kind of person that God will invest his power in demonstrate his favor on, and share his purpose with. How many of you here today are Christians? 
You're 35, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. You don't feel like you've ever gotten off the starting blocks. You look at your life and you say, I know I'm saved, but what was, it, what, was it, what was life for? I'll tell you what your problem is. You've just never really been fully committed to God. Where you say, God, I want your plan in my life. Whatever you want from me, that's what I'll do. The next one is so close to that, I'll just go right on into it. I'm talking about things that, that are pursuits so important that they deserve your attention without contingency. And that's the instruction of scriptures. Because whenever you settle, start out to find God's will for your life, you will discover the lion's share of God's will right here, okay? You'll find most of God's will in this book. 99% of God's will is right here for you. It's just obeying God's will. So I wonder, have you ever, have you ever come to a place where you say, you know what? I'm going to take God's word, and whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. No contingencies, no plan Bs, no stop and start. If God says that I should pray, I'm going to pray. If God says that I should study his word, I'm going to study his word. If God says I should be in church, I'm going to be in church. If God says I should tithe, I'm going to tithe. If God says that I should share my faith with other people, I'm going to share my faith with other people. And this is not just something I'm going to do today. I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And whatever it takes and whatever I have to burn up in my life, that's what I'm going to do in order to follow God's will. Now, when you get outside of, God, outside of the Bible here, and you're trying to discover something that God wants you to do that's not in this book, and there are going to be things like that, because there'll be life decisions that you can't necessarily go to the Bible and find an answer for, here's what happens. You just go before God in prayer, and you say, God, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do. And when you do that, God will begin to work in your life. Now, he won't give you a roadmap for the next five years, but he'll say, turn here, do this. You'll say, well, I don't understand this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I burned the oxen, I burned the implements of plowing, and there's no turning back, there's no plan B. God wants me to do this, I'm going to do this, no turning back. And you knew I'd get to this one. There's one pursuit above all that deserves your commitment with no contingency, and that is trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation. Trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation. I honestly believe there must come a point in time in your life, if you want to go to heaven, where you invite Jesus Christ into your life and he becomes more important than anything else in this world. You know, I, I'm going to get into a touchy area here and I know it's already 1030. <laughs> But many times I ask people to trust Christ, and they'll say, well, I will trust him privately, but I don't want to go through baptism because if I go through baptism, that would upset my family. Now, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Listen to me. You don't. I want to make that very clear. Salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. But do you hear the tone there? The tone says, I will follow Jesus as long as it doesn't upset my family. Something's wrong with that. There are people who say, well, I will trust Jesus Christ, but I've got some things that I want to do first. I got, I got some fun I want to have. I, I've got some, you know, I've actually had businessmen tell me, i got a deal coming up, and it's not strictly, it's not strictly honest. I need to do that deal before I accept Jesus. Do you, do you hear that? That's like saying, Money is more important to me than Jesus. Or my friends are more important to me 
than Jesus. It's very simple to be saved. That's not complicated. What is a challenge is that in your heart and in your life, Jesus Christ must become someone so important that you accept him and you receive him and you burn your plow and you sacrifice the oxen and you're saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm not turning back. I'm not going to value anyone more than him. He is my everything. I am receiving him as my Lord and as my Savior. I'm asking you this morning, have you ever done that? I'm not asking you. This is, this is care, I'm careful about this. I'm not asking you, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? I am asking you, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? So much so that you say, I'm receiving him above all else. No contingencies, no plan B. He is my Lord and he is my Savior. When Christianity was introduced in India, there was a leader of a particular religion. I think it was Hinduism who said, we will be glad to receive Jesus. We already have thousands of gods. We will make him another one. You can't do that with Jesus. With him, it's either all or nothing. He either becomes everything to you or nothing. I'm going to ask you today, have you ever received him in that way? With every head bowed, every eye closed, please. Someone may be here today and the Holy Spirit has kind of touched, touched your heart. 